Happy New Year, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of a new year, a gift of a new day to gather together to worship you, to glorify you in song and in word. Father, thank you uh, for the hope and the assurance that you've given us in Christ because of the amazing work uh, that he did on the cross for us. So, Father, I just ask a blessing on our worship today uh, that you would transform our lives day by day into more of your likeness as we go about our lives, as we uh, learn to serve you more day by day and where you've put us, the people you're bringing into our lives. Uh, so, Father, help us to be receptive um, as we begin this new year uh, to what you would have us become, do, live new challenges maybe, uh, new means in which we can grow and mature uh, to take some bold, courageous risks for the kingdom of God and to see what you do in us and through us. So I'm ever so thankful uh, for everyone here, uh, those who serve so diligently in um, different areas and arenas here and in the community. Uh, we are truly blessed uh, by this body. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, Matthew, or if you have Matthew, there it is, Mark chapter 7. I need something on the screen. <laughs> Mark chapter 7. Um, so put a finger there, if you would, and then also Acts chapter 17, because we're going to be in both places. Um, to begin, so this is kind of a precursor to us getting to dive deep in the book of Mark again, where we left off um, months and months and months ago. It was Mark chapter 6 where we ended. That's been the end of the summer, my goodness, how time has flown. And so we closed out Mark chapter 6 just by way of review uh, for Jesus as he's walking on the water and going place. Uh, by the way, do you like how this is set up? This is like some of you, when you came in today, you're like, I don't know where to sit. Where do I go? <laughs> I love doing that to y'all. It's so fun. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, Jesus is walking across the water. He is doing more miracles, and the disciples are fearful, and he says, take heart, be of good courage. Don't be afraid. This is Jesus' uh, very good advice to his disciples, not only to his disciples then, but to you and I today. That crossing that they were on in, at the end of Mark chapter 6 moved them to the west side of the Sea of Galilee uh, at a place called Gennesaret. And all that, that's a, that's a geographic location. It's about four miles wide, and about a, or a mile wide and four miles long. It's this beautiful farmland growing. This is a, like the, the, the heart of uh, growing crops and those kinds of things uh, in Galilee there. Where Jesus did much of his miracles in and around the northern part of Israel. Where he loved his enemies um, and expecting nothing in return from them. Being kind to the ungrateful and even evil people. He just poured out his grace indiscriminately to be a blessing to all those people so they would understand and know the kingdom. The point was two reasons, basically. One, that no one gets God. We don't seek Him. We're not looking for Him. We're just doing our own thing. And He is the one who seeks us. We go our own way in a life of sin, yet God in His grace and mercy in His loving kindness to His enemies that we were once, He saves us. He makes us defect from the kingdom of darkness, if you will, or the biblical term is to repent and to come into his marvelous kingdom of light. The second thing is in believing Jesus, coming to faith, being baptized, you are marked by him. You are marked by God, saved into his kingdom. And you are now marked by and as children of his kingdom. Now, I'll say, 
the desire for your hearts have been completely changed to now live for Him, to now live in the same measure that He gave us an example to do. And we saw that formula, if you will, because typically Americans like formulas, right? We like boxes to check and we can, at least I do, conquer it, kill it, break it, yeah, right? So here are three that we talked about. God's method, if you will, and how we go about doing that. One is we hear His Word. We come to know His Word. We come to understand His Word. But it has to go from that to actually action and obeying His Word. And when you do that, you know you're standing on the rock. So we said it in those three concepts, if you'll hear His Word, obey His Word. And you can recognize as a Christian that regardless of the circumstances that you face, when you do those, you are standing exactly where God wants you to stand. Regardless of what's happened, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever is happening in life, whatever is happening in the world, when we rest on the foundation of God's word and obey, we are standing on the rock. And we shared this last week even, on Christmas Day, in our waiting for the king's return. The birth of a savior and now on our side, waiting for his return. How we do that with the hope of joy joy to the world and so the current circumstances in our present day culture how i would describe them or sum them up is this it's just a world gone mad that's i don't know how else to, de- to describe that and yet that assumes as we i just keep hammering away that assumes there is an objective standard by which you can say that's just not right <laughs> there's something that we have to define as this is good, healthy, and, and moral, and this is not. And we make those distinctions, and we shouldn't be afraid to. In fact, I would, I've been reading C.S. Lewis, some of his uh, books, um, and he uses this term, it's called uh, technocracy, is how he described it. And he came up with that as he is watching, um, going through World War II, and watching all of those things transpire, and the idea of the human condition and what it does to human beings, one to another. And he watched that as he watches in real time the rise and fall of Germany, the dropping of an atomic bomb on a people, and just the pure, utter evil of uh, uh, a dictator in, in Joseph Stalin. And what he meant by all that is was a system as you went through that, as he watched that unfold, was um, governmental powers that be that are going to be controlled by special skilled people, um, scientists, engineers, and the like, which are good things to pursue. But when everything is in the hands of experts, that's what he was getting at. This is where this is going to lead. Now, you have to realize this was 30, 40, 50 years ago when he wrote this. And I think it's just very prophetic of him to see if we go down this, this is where this is going to lead to. When these seeds get sown, this is going to be the fruit, and you and I, I believe, are living that. I think at this point, as we begin this new year, we understand that we are living in a, I'll say, a secular reformation, um, a re-envisioning, a reconditioning, uh, the reconstruction uh, in a rebellion against the nature and character of who God is. And that notion invades Every precept of our soul enslaves us uh, to, to the just exact opposite of liberty and virtue and freedoms and all those things of what is morally good and true. In fact, if you go to Romans 6, I'll just read this, 6.11. 
Paul says basically the same thing or comes to the same conclusion long before C.S. Lewis does. He says this, so, verse 11, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body, but to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, in other words, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't do that. There's the distinction. But do this. Present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. There are clear distinctions here. Paul set this up again long before C.S. Lewis. And here's the gist of that. You will either be, Scripture in this concept, either be a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. It's not a matter of whether, but which one. We begin another new year to consider and reflect on the past years with, I believe, this hope that a freedom-loving, liberty-established society that we have of self-government, of self-evidential truths formulated on the Word of God, would somehow apply the brakes to the direction that we are going on this social insanity road that we are on that saturates every aspect of our life, every institution, all of it. And we seem to be speeding past every possible exit we could stop and take a breather and go, wait a minute, let's think this through. And so I believe we are embroiled in a culture that has rejected the objective truth of God, throwing off what was or is considered now passe, if you will, and now believes it's stylish to openly embrace and encourage all the degrading passions of what slavery to sin means. We have been robbed of the very foundation of realities by those in power who define what human beings are. And just there's just myriads of examples, but one of those that pops to mind is, is the Disrespect of Marriage Act that was just passed. Or an omnibus bill that was just passed that continues us further down the financial uh, slavery, if you will, destroying financial prosperity, or a nihilistic view of what we consider climate and all of those things. So if you have your Bibles open, Mark chapter 7, here's the premise to all of this. Here's what Jesus is describing back then that applies to us today, I believe. And the key to this whole chapter is in verse 8. And that's our launching point this morning. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And again, there's this distinction, this discrimination that has to be made. And here's the discrimination. You leave the commandment of God, verse 8, and hold to the tradition of men. That's the discrimination that's being made. That's what Jesus is driving home. And he's doing it in a context of Jewish culture. Now, that's not us. And so you have to take this principle and pour it into our life today. And that's my objective today. How do, how do we do that? <clears throat> Listen, there are, no, there are no new places, no new lands for us as Christian people like they did in six, the 1600s to sail away, to get, rid of, uh, get away from persecution, to get, get away from all of those things. Funny how that happens, isn't it? No matter where you go, <clears throat> sin always seems to show up. <laughs> No matter where I go, I show up and make a mess of things. 
And we are, you know, 400 some odd years past that point in history and the reasons why faithful people came to get away from the persecution. But there are no new places to go. You can't start over amid the real, and it is real, the social pressure that you, your kids, especially your children, or my grandchildren, your grandchildren, are under. Those that believe the lie, speak the lie, and live the lie, those that hold the traditions of men. There are no breaks, by the way, to get off this exit. The breaks are not being applied on our way to totalitarianism or whatever is in store. And so we are in a day, I believe, where the preaching and teaching of the gospel, as Paul told Timothy, um, it's way out of season. We're not in a season of, of, of that. Preach the word in season and out of season, in other words. And I believe this is an out of the season moment in our culture, in our history. Secularism has no foundation for truth. All that's left is whatever people decide. In essence, all that is left is power. And if I can make you do something, that's kind of where we're at. So we're told to follow the science. Follow those traditions that we apply to you or, or we'll just, you know, make your life miserable. You can keep those old ways in your head, in your home, and in your church, but that's it. They do not belong in the public square anymore. To which I would respond, really? Just watch me. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ, <clears throat> our Savior, Paul himself, the early church and early church history, the early church fathers spoke the kingdom gospel message to the same culture that you and I believe are in now, an indifferent, arrogant, darkened audience, just like today. And so we begin the new year. I just want to share two essential elements of an effective gospel message in a post-Christian era that you and I live, that you and I have been called to live in. We can't go back and go, oh, no, I wish it was this. We can't do that anymore. And that's just not even helpful to begin with. We're here. And in God's sovereignty, you're here. And you're here at this moment, and this time, and this piece of history in your life that you are living out for these purposes, I believe. And you and I, as Christian people, must envelop these principles into our lives. It's what the church needs to see and do in order to make disciples of the nations. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And it's not going to change. And it will not change until Christ returns. So here's the first one, and this is a standalone one. <clears throat> it's this. We need to make the connections that Jesus makes to all areas of life today in this sense. The commandments of God over and supersede the traditions of men. As Christians, we just desperately need to, to think like Christ, to have the mind of Christ that Paul talks about, to make the connection and reject or leave, if you will, the commandments uh, of the traditions of men to the commandments of God. In all those areas of life, all the outcomes of loving your neighbor, that's what that means. This is, this is and in essence, when you follow the commandments of God, you will be loving your neighbor, and it'll happen just naturally. Why? Because we're following the commandments of God. But when you pursue the traditions of men, the, the exact opposite happens. And you're seeing this unfold before your very eyes. When we pursue that, all kinds of, again, bad things, ungodly things is probably maybe a better way to put it, 
as far as a description, will begin to happen. So our societal house in this nation is being burnt down. We, beloved, are living in and have been called to this moment to rebuild in the commandments of God. That's our destiny, if you will, as Christian people in this moment and for the time you and I have left on this earth, however long that is, to find that in your own life and collectively as a body of believers here in this place in this moment in time. We must need to refocus when you leave the commandments of God according to human identity, what is masculinity? When you leave the description of what is femininity, when you leave God's commandment and description according to marriage or money or financial systems, how we do that as a nation or climate or ethics, medical or otherwise, freedom, liberty, you can be sure of just a few things. I'll be so bold as to say without exception, because I just trust the Lord that much. It will be when you leave the commandments of God detrimental to human beings. It will allow lawlessness to thrive. And it will afford a few in a centralized group of power to enslave the rest. That's how C.S. Lewis described technocracy. Jesus refers to this in this fashion in Luke chapter 22, verse 25, referring to this whole conversation of the disciples doing this. I'm the greatest. No, I am. And so they had this argument. And so finally they go to the greatest and say, hey, who is it? <laughs> and I just imagine Jesus going, really? You still don't get it yet. And here's what he said to his disciples. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority, listen, over them all call themselves benefactors. Is that not what's going on today? We're going to lord it over you all because we're the experts and you all are going to be the benefactors. Isn't that a good, a great plan? Just trust us. It'll be good for you. Because we are the benefactors of all of society, of all of life. And Jesus says that's, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the world system does. That's not how we are to operate. We, the few, must have the power to help, to protect, to decide for the masses because we are the benefactors of society. We are the experts and so on. I'll just give you a, an example, if you don't mind. There's a printout I, I put out on the table out there. Um, I just called it Making the Connections. Um, Commandments of God for Rebuilding the Culture. And it just gives categories of marriage, gender, race, life, identity, dominion, work, all those things. What God says about those, I would encourage you just to, to take those and just do a quick study. Just crack open your Bible and see where it leads you. But just an example of climate, why um, I'm not a big proponent of what's being pushed as far as climate and all of those things. Because it does change. We had to redefine you know, global warming to climate change because it seems to fluctuate, does it not? So just for full disclosure, I am not on board with that. Yes, I want clean water, and yes, we do have to conserve things to do it well and to do it right. We just don't get to trash the planet. So you can't put me in the corner of, oh, you're on this side or this side. Nope, not, not going to do that. But here's why I'm real skeptical about the direction that we're going. 
when you listen to people that are leading this, what's behind that, as much as they say, oh, we want to take care of things, um, let me just, this is a quote. Um, this gentleman has since passed away. He was a research biologist for the, our national parks. He describes himself as a biocentrist, and all that means is human beings are not more important than any other living thing. That's, that's all that means. And so he was reviewing a book. The book is called The End of Nature, which was written in 1989, which, by the way, it hasn't happened yet in all their predictions. But here's, this is just this window into when you pursue the traditions of men, where this leads. And just listen, listen to this religious idea. He says, quote, We are not interested in the utility of a particular species or free-flowing river or ecosystems to mankind. They have intrinsic value, more value to me than other human beings, or a billion of them. Human happiness and certainly human fecundity, and that's fertility, are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know a social scientist who remind me that people are part of nature, but this isn't true. Somewhere along the line, about a billion years ago, maybe half that, we quit the contract and have become a cancer. We have become a plague on ourselves and upon the earth. It is cosmologically unlikely that the developing world will choose to end its orgy of fossil fuel consumption and the third world its suicidal consumption of the landscape. Until such time as Homo sapiens should decide to rejoin nature, some of us, listen, can only hope for the right virus to come along. This was before COVID, so don't go conspiracy theory. Seems crazy, okay? Stop. Just stop. Ugh. That ideology is imbibed in high places of power and decision-making around the world. A world that hates everything about God's created order and about God's commandments. And I just share that to point out this clear distinction that is made in what is happening in our culture and how we respond as Christian people. We, I believe, have and should and must have the discernment to make these connections that Jesus makes so long ago in the context of a Jewish ideology and what was happening in his day and take that very same principle and bring it over into where you and I are living today. I'm not concerned about the traditions of men when Jesus was talking about that and how they washed their hands, all those things, how they thought worship us. We'll get into that when we get more into Mark chapter 7. But for today, it's this notion of we have to make these distinctions and take these principles that Jesus is applying into our own lives here now. We should be able to, through a multitude of counselors, Paul and Acts, the, like the Bereans, study the scripture, understand what's going on, then pursue a godly path in our lives to make what Christ is doing in our lives so distinct, the culture around us, which will make certain that we love our neighbor as ourselves. But for that to happen, we have to pursue the love of God. We have to make the connection. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. They're not hard, in other words. No, they're hard to do sometimes. It's, I think that we ought to all sit down and go, okay, how easy it is to love your enemy. I mean, someone that is so viscerally against you. 
to truly love them and to know what that means and to live that out. It's humanly pretty much impossible, I would say. It's only possible because Christ is in you. I can do this because Christ has done it for me because I did that to Christ. I was that visceral against who Jesus Christ is. I was that enemy, and he still loved me, died for me. Those commandments are not burdensome, and they don't take us down the path of men that leads to death, but they always, always bring life. That's the first point, the first element. Make the connection in your own life. Here's the second one. Be a prophetic voice for the gospel. You and I, in this moment, as we begin the new year, need to be this prophetic voice to culture. Or, I've shared this in the past before, too, to have the theology that gets you fired. <laughs> Not literally, but for some of you, I know that's, you know, hey, if I say something, what, what's going to happen? Will I get to promote? I'm some of you, are, you know, you, you have to process that, don't you? Here's the first one. How to be a prophetic force. Tell them that God is. So this is where you go to Acts chapter 17. Beginning of verse 24-ish. This is Paul's, this is how he lays this out. To be a prophetic voice in preaching and sharing the gospel in your own life with the people that God is bringing into your life. To make the distinction, to make sure it's clear. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor does he serve human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets. Now remember he's in Athens. And he saw all those, all those hey, to this God and this God and this God. And then they had all these gods. And he's like, oh, I see you guys are pretty religious. How oh, interesting. Now let me just show you something here. Because you are obviously ignorant. Because how can you have all these gods? That's his point. For we are indeed his offspring, as some of your poets have said, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imaginations of men. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance, which is a really important point. Assurance. To all by raising him from the dead. You got to tell them who God is. Jesus in John 6, 28 was asked the question, what must we do? What does God require? Can you just tell us? Can, can we just do this? Just lay it out. And so Jesus does. It's a great question. It's a really good question. What does God desire of you in order for you to be made right with him? Well, first of all, that's a presupposes that one there is a god to ask right it presupposes that and again that's where you have to start god is he exists there's wisdom that says and asks this question here's jesus answer here's the work of god is this to believe in the one he has sent is that burdensome 
I'm glad it's not, okay, I need y'all to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and you got, you know, five years to do this. So start planning. If you're going to follow me, go, does that make sense? There's not this big grandiose thing that's going to consume and, and just give up everything to go do this to get to some certain place to go, there's God. No, it's not burdensome. It's not weighty in that sense. It's nothing I can do. He's doing it to me and for me. It's to believe in the one God has sent, referring to himself. For some in Christian circles, where we are in our culture, it seems to me they are pining away for a bygone era when at least in their thinking, oh, it's so much better back then, right? In comparison to what? Today, maybe. Certainly not if you want to go back. How far do you want to go back? If you're going to be consistent, why are you stopping there? Why not go back farther in history? I mean, how is it that you get to pick and choose where you're going to stop? Does that make sense? Christians throughout history have had to deal with this very same thing you and I are dealing with. But we get stuck, it seems to me, like staring at an old picture, remembering that moment and what it meant to you. It's like, oh, I just want that. Those are good memories and good moments in life that we can refer to. But they are in the past. They don't bring hope for today. The foundation for that moment of that moral goodness or whatever that is to you, you know, leave it to Beaver 1950s or whatever that is. Sorry for everybody under 35 on my references. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what that is for you. I, I should do a better job and figure that out. <laughs> but that's typically in the conversations that I have. It's, oh, it's this. Well, guess what? To be clear, all of those seeds were sown back then that you are now reaping today. We have been the beneficiary of that goodness, of those moral choices and the justice that came from a people who held to the commandments of God and built this nation. But that's no longer the case as we are clearly now being driven by the traditions of men. And the only way for our future is for God to redeem a people to himself. You can't go back and go, oh, it's got to be this. The only way to get there is to go forward. And the only way to get forward is to recognize where we are in history, just like the early church in a completely pagan, man-centered world, and they seem to be able to proclaim the gospel. So that once again, men and women flourish and understand and find the joy in the principles of God and his commandments. God's means and his methods for telling them that he exists is you, his called out people. There is no other option here. He turned his ministry over to 12 disciples. That turned into 120. That turned into the day of Pentecost, 3,000, and it kept growing from there. And it has now gone from one person Jesus Christ to 12 close disciples he trained for three years. It has gone entirely around the world, which is why you and I are here in this very moment in time in history. There is no other means. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, and we must be able to declare God is. Unapologetically, without equivocation, 
without worrying about what people are going to say or, or how much they think I'm dumber than a box of rocks because I believe in an eternal God who created. And I don't believe what they believe, that this just all happened by chance and randomness. Paul in Athens, as he's in Acts 17, he points out all to those that are following these traditions. And he says, you are very religious. That wasn't a commendation, by the way, to them. He's making the point that no matter where you go, no matter where you go in the world, everybody is religious. We are created to worship. And it will be either God or, in our sinful ignorance, something man-made. Again, it's not a matter of whether, but which one you're going to choose. So God has given his witness in what he has created, according to Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. They declare the, the glory of his handiwork. He's also given his witness in each one of us in Romans. He's put it in your conscience. There are no atheists. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. We try to get these categories, but the person you're going to work with, you're, wherever you are, there's no such thing as an atheist. He put it there. They are truth suppressors. That's what they are. That's what I was. He's made it clear to him, according to Romans 1, his standard is written on everybody's heart, the conscience. And that makes everyone accountable to him and him alone. Romans 2. They willfully reject what they know to be true. Finally, God has given his witness in the person of Jesus Christ and those he has called out to live currently, his church, to live faithfully in those commands that God has given. That's how we let them know who God is. Here's the second point. got to tell them who God is. What's his character? Look at verse, Acts 17, beginning in verse 24. You have to remember, Paul is in Athens, right? This is like university of the entire world. All the smart mind, I mean, this is the place. You want your kid to go to college, this is where you want him to go. This is the best, the brightest, this is all of it, right here. That's where Paul is. The place of supreme philosophy, all the supreme intellectualism, uh, this is where you went. And in this discourse that Paul has in these few verses, he proves the truth of God that the foolishness of God is wiser than the top 100 smartest men in this university in Athens. And God's weakness is stronger than anything 100 men could put together. Do you see the distinction? It's amazing how proud we get in what we know or what we think we know and paul says in first corinthians one you know something god's just frivolous if there could be such a thing with god that he could be frivolous in anything but just the nature of who he is and he just has this whim this thought this you know it's wiser than the smartest person you could ever put together or a hundred smart people it's so far beyond them. That's his point. Therefore, who is God? Verse 24, if you would. How does Paul walk through this? He begins like this. Paul, God's the creator. This is where Paul starts. There is a God. Hey, I see you're all religious. Hey, let me tell you about, there is a God who created all this. What is he like? Who is this God? He's a creator, Paul says. He made the world and everything in it, period. That's it. 
you can try to have your philosophy and try to redo all of this, but God created. He is a creator God. Truth gives no ground to the traditions of men in the origins of universe or any place else. It cannot. Man is all his wisdom is yet to create anything from nothing. As smart as we are, as grand as we are, all the technology that's wonderful that we can do good things and not so good things. Still hasn't created something from nothing. So God is a creator. That's who God is. Again, end of verse 24. God is a ruler. From Acts chapter 17. He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made with human hands. That's a logical, that's a logical thought process, right? God's the creator of everything. All the things that you see, experience, and, and so many more that you have no clue. He is ruler or creator of all those. And if that's the case, the logical conclusion is, if he's the creator of all things, then everything he created belongs to him. This is his sandbox we're playing in. <laughs> These are all his toys we get to play with. Not yours, not mine. And he gets to do what he pleases with them. Which, therefore, the conclusion comes that nothing built with human hands, there's not a building, there's not a temple, there's not physical or philosophical you know, in that respect, you, don't, you can't build all these ideas. Again, so it doesn't matter if you think physical building and we build these buildings. And this is where we worship our God. Or you do it in the university and all your uh, ideology and thought process. It doesn't matter where you're building it. It's too small for God. He's far bigger than that. He is ruler of it all. He's far grander and more glorious than you possibly can imagine. Verse 25. He is a good giver. When you read Paul, he's, he's not served by human hands. There's nothing you can bring to him that makes, benefits him in any way. Zero. Nothing he needs from me or from you or from anybody in this world. That's Paul's point. Nor that we could bring something where we could get a benefit from him. It all flows one way. It all flows by his grace and his mercy to you. He gives graciously to all. And Paul emphasized that. Jesus does the same thing in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He's indiscriminate. He is so good and gracious. The sun rises. It doesn't matter. It's coming up. It's coming down. He is the giver, the good giver. Verse 26, God is sovereign. He controls all things. God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind, and he has predetermined the longevity of each nation and the boundaries of each nation. Throughout all time in history, just go read the book of Daniel. You see Nebuchadnezzar's vision and the big statue. There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze. Just read that. There, that that's, that's proof. And I can look at that and go, oh, I can go back in history and go, here's Babylon, here's Medo-Persia, here's all the way to Rome. God is the one who set those up. That should bring you great comfort as you struggle in our current situation and where you think our culture is going. It should bring you immense hope knowing that God is in control. He has always governed the affairs and the destinies of both men and nations. He is sovereign over it all. Then in verse 27 through 29, God is not quiet. I think C.S. Lewis wrote a book, uh, God is Not Silent. I think 
it's a good, well, I say it's a good book. I can't remember the title, but I know I've read something. <laughs> Paul's point is he is not far from any one of us. We are his children in this sense, and please hear this, don't confuse this with salvation and faith. We are his children in the sense Paul is referring to here is that he has created humanity. Does that make sense? There's a, you got to make the distinction. Not everybody is God's children. Jesus makes that real clear. Hey, you're the father of the devil. That's what he told the Pharisees. That's a big distinction to make. <laughs> but in this sense of what Paul is doing, remember, hey, I see you're really religious. Oh, yeah, because we're all religious. Why? Because God is not silent. He created us in his image. And we shouldn't think that God can be formed by anything we create ourselves. Oh, here is God. Let me build this. Oh, here is God. Here, bow down and worship this. Here is God. Nope. God in his mercy, his goodness in the past, Paul says, was patient with that mentality. And he says, with ignorant people who believe themselves to be wise. So God is shouting from creation, shouting from the cross, shouting from the church and those who he has redeemed from all of creation. See, our prophetic voice declares that God created, that God rules, that God gives, that He controls, that He shouts who He is from all time and eternity. Therefore, everyone from all walks of life are without excuse, according to Romans chapter 21. So our prophetic voice must tell that God is who he is, his character, and finally, what God has said. Verse 30. What does God say? Acts 17. He commands people everywhere to repent or be judged. Believe in the one God has sent. Repent of your sinful worship to all these other things. Be baptized in my name. Have eternal life. Or continue to be wise in your own eyes and face eternal judgment, death, and hell. God continues with each passing day to demonstrate his immeasurable patience with the rebellious people. But there is one day. There is one day in the future, in a single moment in time, when once again the king will invade his creation to judge the world through the person Jesus Christ. There is now more proof of truth of who he is, what he's done, through his word, through Jesus Christ's actual life, through the resurrection, and he will hold you accountable to that standard, to the commands of God. Probably slide over. <laughs> That's the commandment of God. You will be. Forget the tradition of men. You can hold on those for your whole life. But there will be a day of reckoning that comes. This has never been popular. What I'm sharing with you is not popular in, in any sense of the imagination. It's not today, and it wasn't when Paul wrote this as well, verse 32. What's the response in Acts chapter 17? Some of them, your version says, mocked or sneered. That's the response. Paul, you're just dumber than a box of rocks. You're an idiot. So they mock him. That's part of the process. And you have to be prepared for that. To not follow the traditions of men to make men, you know, be so they like you. And I don't want them to say anything bad, you know, that. So you really believe that? Why do you, that's just, wow, where is your head at? You believe in a God? 
Well, flip it all around and start asking the questions and ask them where their standard comes from and how do they know. Few in that crowd, then Paul wrote this and was speaking to these people, a few in that crowd believed those that God chose to save. See, our role as we begin this new year is always to proclaim the truth. And God is responsible for who shows up. He is responsible for the results. He is the one who takes the heart of stone out and gives it a heart of flesh. He is the one who redeems your role, my role in life, in all those arenas, and all those contextual places of ideas and thoughts from, from what a man is, what marriage is, what work is, and all those arenas when you apply God's principles. That is our role to proclaim the nature and character of who God is in all of those arenas. The results are up to God. He's the one that does that. You and I must be a prophetic voice of the gospel. We are to be faithful to the calling and make the connections with a godly worldview. We don't get to pick and choose. You must do the hard work of cracking open scripture when things are happening in our culture. Okay, God, I want your I want to know. Even if I have to reorient my life, and as hard as that is for us, I know you're with me, you're never going to leave me, your spirit is moving in me, and I can have the power and the will to do this because I know when I go in that direction, when I repent, when I reorient my mind to what you're doing, to what you're saying, life is going to be a blessing. It's not a primrose path because when you continue to read and ask, guess what happens? The world pushes back, don't they? And there's persecution that comes. So here's the third part. Be prepared for, for the future by sacrificing for that future that you may never see the reality of. Do you understand? To use our foundation as a nation, that's what happened in the 1600s. Those Christian people who sailed from Norway, Sweden, all those places, England, they didn't see the fruition of what you and I have. Abraham's the same way. God calls him out. It's the same thing. Abraham's, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to save the world through your descendants. And he saw none of what he wanted to see in that sense. But what does scripture say? Man, he saw it by faith. He saw what was coming. He trusted the Lord. You and I have to be prepared for this future. To sacrifice today for that. That to me is a hill worth dying on. That's something of value that we're fighting for. Even if I don't see it. My grandkids might. That's probably why I'm so passionate because I have them now. And I see what's going on. I'm like, man, in 20, 30 years, when they become my age or older, what is it going to be for them? When they look back on my life, I want them to hear in their heads some of the things that I've said, the scripture that we've talked about when they were little all the way up and to remind them that God is. And His nature and character is good. Even though I may never see that. And you and I need to be, and this is important to close, a seer of hope, that there is hope for the future. Listen, beloved, you cannot, we cannot afford to get stuck in the doldrums. As hard as it is, God is always hopeful. He is always willing to bless his people. 
the best example is just go read the book of Exodus. All the things that were happening in Egypt and then Goshen is, is the, in the suburbs. <laughs> and everything that, everything's judging here, everything's good here. I believe that is happening with, with the church. Everything that the church is being persecuted in, it is this maturing and this growth that is taking place. We must have hope, a hope-filled future instead of thinking that, oh, this must be it. We're the last generation. God's coming back tomorrow. Okay. Just throw up your hands. Can't do that. I want to. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> uh, but that's not our lot. And it's not our decision. And what does God admonish you to do? What is his commandment for you and I to do? To be faithful till he comes. Jesus' parable of the wicked servants, right? Will he find faith on the earth when he comes? Will he find, in other words, faithful people living this out when he returns? Listen, unless the Lord builds a house, the people who labor do so in vain. That is not our objective as we begin this new year to understand the directives that God has given us, to know who he is and what he is, to be able to share that and have the confidence and the boldness to do so as we begin a new year. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your word, that we can know you, that we can clearly understand and see the directions in which we need to go, that through your word and your spirit that is in us, you shape us and mold us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we all recognize that we fall short of that. But even in our sinful nature, even in the battle that we are, knowing that we have been justified, that we are set free, we still in this moment, in this life, like Paul, battle daily. So, Father, I pray as we begin this new year, I ask, as boldly as I possibly know how to do, that your spirit will be poured out in this church and these people on us to move in such a way that is just so unique to the culture, so attractive to those who are lost, so attractive to those who are looking and seeking because they are, that we would respond in such a way that our lives would reflect what you're doing in us and through us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our uh, communion song.